it's painful when people around you are saying that you're not capable or you're not going to be successful in something. And it can really deeply impact not only the way that you view your success externally, but also who you view yourself as going forward. to 10 years. That seems like a reasonable amount of time to commit to achieving your goal and to say, you know what, no matter what, I'm going to see it through at least in the first five years. And here's where I want to be very clear about something. And I want you to be uncompromising when it comes to your goals, but extremely adaptive and flexible when it comes to how you achieve that goal. Be flexible about the process. So I don't mean to say like, you know what? I tried door-to-door sales for five years. I got nowhere. This is the dumbest idea ever. I didn't get to my goal. Well, if door-to-door sales doesn't work, do do an inbound marketing campaign. Do direct mail. Do something different. Try something. Just do it differently and find a way to make it work. People look at us like, well, you quit blind, didn't you? I guess in a way I did. So how do you know when to quit? How do you know when to get out? And so I want to be clear about something. Now, I want to pull this into the deep waters to see if we can uncover some nuggets of truth, whether you agree with me or disagree or agree with Nitty or whatever. I I think it's, it's important for us to get there so we can finally move past this conversation. So here's the thing. Uh, I'm working in my business. Uh, I started in 1995, as I mentioned, December 95, we incorporate, I'm running this company called blind and During the 20 plus years of running this company, we reinvented ourselves many times. We started as a creative agency, a visual communication company, pretty generic, really unfocused. Pretty early on, I think about a year into it, I'm like, I just need to focus on motion design. This seems really fun, seems really interesting. And the trend lines seem to be pointing upwards. I want to go all in on this. So I stopped doing other work and I do this. So there was already one, I guess, small quit. I quit all these other things. I said no to identity design, to print design, to packaging, to editorial design, all the other kinds of opportunities I was getting. I just want to get really good at motion design. And as you can imagine, every time you do something new, you make all kinds of mistakes. I'm going to share a story with you right now uh, that I don't think I've shared before. I was hired by uh, a large broadcast company to work on a show, uh, show open I had never done a show open before and we had done some small things for them before. And they're like, you know, we'd like to give you this opportunity. Great. The creative director was a very hands-on person, uh, really amazing guy, but changed his mind about things up until the last minute. And I remember driving all along Melrose in Hollywood, trying to find props to shoot. A part of the concept was we're going to shoot toys. I don't know why that was the concept, but that was. And so we booked a cinematographer, a stage, and we shot. And I didn't know what I was doing. So the toys were static. The camera was static. And so they're mostly just stills. And I bring him over to the editor. His name is Sergio. And Sergio's like, "Uh, what do you want me to do with this? I'm like, I don't know, make it work. And that was professionally pretty embarrassing because uh, the editor knew it was kind of crap. And he did the best he could with what we gave him and submitted a first cut to, to our client. 
the client gave a really long pause when they saw this thing and I didn't know any better. So it's like, this is not good. The client wound up organizing their own shoot and shooting it themselves. And let's just say they didn't hire us to do main titles anymore after that. And that was a professional embarrassment to me. And there are many others in the history of the company, but you know what? We just persevere. We sit there and we ask ourselves, what did we do wrong? Uh, what could we do better? And this was the long list on what did we do wrong? And we learned from those things. So I'm, I'm chugging along. I'm starting to have some progress making it through. And we start to uh, get invited to bigger and better projects, bigger clients, bigger budgets, more responsibilities. So we progress from doing just title design, uh, what they call supers, like titles superimposed over picture, to doing at the other end of the spectrum, all live action commercials, meaning very little graphics, almost no titles, and just directing live action. And so there's a whole gamut there. So each time we kind of quit the old version of the company and we do a new version. And somewhere along the way, I recognize that the industry is changing, uh, that there are DVRs and TiVo and streaming services starting to come online. And I'm noticing the young people in our company no longer have cable or satellite. They're mostly getting their entertainment through streaming services, uh, pirated things, whatever. And it's become very clear to me at this point that the future of making commercials for a living is on its way out. And I have meetings with my managers and I say, you know what? Uh, we need to start pivoting this ship before it's too late. And I remember my executive producer saying, Chris, I believe you. I really believe you. But I think your prediction of the timeline is way faster than it is in reality. I think there's still a lot of money to be made here, and this is what we're good at. And he battled me on this thing. And in the meantime, I'm looking at black and white empirical data. We talked about this before, that the jobs are shrinking. I can see the overall average budget is getting smaller. I'm seeing the revenue ever so slightly trend towards flat and then in the decline. I'm seeing our profit margins shrink because the clients are asking for more and paying us less and the jobs are much more complicated. I knew it was going to be just a matter of days. For me, the writing was very clear on the wall. So I was looking for another company. And the way I see it is if you know you're on a train or on a boat and you're headed for disaster, you owe it to yourself and everybody that's put their, their livelihoods in your hand to do everything in your power to get them off that train or to steer the boat away from its destination. And I'm met with all kinds of resistance from my sales reps, from my executive producers, and even some of my creatives because this is what we know how to do. And the first thing I look for is I'm like, you know what? We, we make videos. We don't have to make commercials. Maybe we can make explainer videos. We tried that and that didn't work. So we spent about seven or eight months doing this. I even started a second company called uh, Indie Films to try to take on these projects. Didn't go anywhere. And then I see this thing around web design and brand strategy. I'm like, I want to try that. I think there's longevity in that. There's more apps, more websites. Let me work on that. And it was a real struggle to get through that. And then we're doing brand strategy now. And then all the people that were connected to selling commercials for us, they're finding themselves on a very ever-shrinking chunk of ice and being stranded out in the ocean. I said, you can come over here. But you know what they said? No, it'll still work. So they either quit or were fired and 
tried their best to stay in the industry. Today, I don't know where they are. So to me, I would have stayed in the long haul. And I wish I did because I want, I like round numbers, right? Like I wanted to get to 25 full years. I wanted to pass a hundred million dollars in billings. Not quite. And I would have stayed in it if it remained profitable, if the trend lines were moving in the right direction. So I didn't quit that until I found enough empirical data and also my ability to see what's happening in the larger macro of things that people don't want to watch commercials anymore. The importance of the commercial is on its way out as the rise of social media and streaming is, is coming up. I can see that. So I didn't quit it because it didn't feel right. I quit it because the end was near. What do you think, Nitty? That sounds like a really well thought out decision. And I think that's what makes a smart entrepreneur is that you're so on top of the game and you're a futurist. So you're looking to what's going to be coming down the pike. And of course, I mean, I mean, we talked about the Titanic analogy, right? Like, do you go full full steam ahead towards the glacier or do you try your best to, to avert your course in order to pivot, right? And do something different. You know, the data though is what you're saying did not indicate that this was a viable option in the long term and i think that that is really the key takeaway like everything that that business comes down to is data and so if the numbers aren't matching up for something Unfortunately, you know, the one thing I'm very emotionally driven person, but I don't think numbers lie. And so if the numbers were still showing an upward trajectory for you, it sounds like you would have continued on with blind or the other companies, right? Like, but they, they just didn't show that, that prospect. So at that point, your option is you stay the course and you, you hit the iceberg or you have an opportunity to pivot and survive. Right. And so, yeah, I think that that's really the conclusion to that, isn't it? Is, you know, what are the numbers telling you about your business and can you base a decision then based off of those facts as opposed to the emotional component? Um, and you know, one thing that I'll add in there, Chris, that I thought was really powerful, um, you know, before, as we were talking about, um, being able to build, uh, and strategize our businesses to be optimized, something that we had discussed that I think people really need to hear is that you can't outsource the core competencies of your business. And so when we're thinking about the things that we don't like doing as a part of our business, you know, it's usually the things that are the most important, like you as the personal brand showing up for those marketing meetings or having to do the work like that, right? But there are certain aspects of your business that you're not able to outsource. And so it can't be the core competencies. And ultimately, the reason why we bring somebody in is to fill the gaps in our own knowledge. And so I think that those were two points I really wanted to emphasize because um, those are some of the biggest reasons I find why, you know, people uh, like are, are perhaps giving away the wrong parts of their business. Nobody's saying don't outsource things in order to make your life easier, but you really have to look at, you know, am I doing this because of a discomfort I have with the task that I'm avoiding? Or is this really a part of my business that like having a virtual assistant or somebody that does, um, you know, uh, a piece of your marketing, but not all of it for you, right? You, they can't be creating your social media content for you. It has to be you showing up. So am I trying to bring somebody in to fill in the gaps or am I doing it from a place of, you know, I just need some additional help and this will help facilitate my growth. Thank you so much for reminding me of that and bringing that piece up. 
Um, there's so many different ways we can take that, but I think you did such a great job of summarizing that thought. So Meyer, you're up. Hey, Chris. Hey, Needy. Um, so a little about me, maybe I'll share a bit of experience. So I've been um, in the tech industry for 25 years, been building building websites for clients for for all that time. I think I built my first website in like 94 and it was really good. Clients really loved me. I had lots of lots of work, but I got bored with it. And I didn't understand at the time the power of focus and the power of like building that brand. Uh, I think I've changed my personal personal brand probably about eight times. I eventually gave up, got burnt out. Didn't enjoy doing client work anymore because I wasn't focusing. I just would take any kind of client. I did nonprofits. I did gyms, makeup artists, manufacturers, uh, wood flooring. I did everything. Uh, I'm suffering the weight of that now. Um, here I am, almost 50, and uh, don't don't have like a web agency to my name. Don't have the financial success that I thought I would have when I was in my 20s. And I'm learning now, uh, especially after meeting you, Chris, and finding your YouTube channel a couple of years ago. I was in pro group for a while, thinking about my business differently. One of the insights maybe that might be helpful for people listening is creatives by default want to do creative work. You know, it's easy to just take on any client. But what we don't seem to understand as creatives is that there's creative work inside of our existing business. So let's say we get a client like a nonprofit. We, let's say we do websites for nonprofits. We have a couple of clients. Well, there's tons of creative work that can be done in that niche if we just look for it. And it, it doesn't appear at first, but it's there. Hey, Meyer, uh, I have a question for you. First of all, sure. thanks for sharing. I did pin your tweet up there, and I, I, I love the kinds of things that you've been sharing and, and how active you've been. Uh, it's hard to believe that you're there at Web 1.0 when Netscape was the default browser and the dominant player in the industry. And yeah. the fact that you were in so early, uh, I don't want to pour salt on your wound, but the, the kind of, of empire you could have built yeah, because you were there so early, the early pioneer, first adopter, first mover, whatever. What was it about other things that compelled you to leave something that was on the verge of just exploding in a very positive way? What was it so we can learn from this? Well, I think like the whole Internet industry and technology in general, there's just so much new stuff happening. Like crypto is the new thing now, right? So now I've been in the last year focusing on crypto stuff, <laughs> much to my detriment, but I think that it's like a hyper creative industry. There's, there's tons of new things being developed. And so that's, it's almost like, um, you don't want to miss out on a trend. You don't want to miss out on that, on the next wave. I think that there's, at least in the past year, I've, I've gone pretty deep into like the whole macroeconomics and Bitcoin and stuff like that. So I think that there's like some influence here by just, just how our economy works. Um, so people should be able to, save money and build a build a financial future for themselves but they're always battling against this inflation and the cost of living and things like that so that may be maybe one of the factors that are influencing my decision um i don't know yeah it sounds to me like uh you're fascinated by new uh technologies and and are always yeah. at the precipice of what's next but not i'm sorry if i use this word and it offends you but not disciplined enough to stay in it to reap the rewards like you're, you're yeah. good at planting seeds, but not returning to, to harvest and to reap yeah. the, the fruit, if you will. Right. Um, yeah. I, I saw you that. put out a tweet of something about rabbits and it reminds me of the Russian proverb. If you chase two rabbits, you will not catch either one. 
So there's yeah. something about your your past, your tendencies uh, to to have a little bit of that shiny object syndrome, where this yeah. is the new, this is the now. I'm all about that, and you keep switching gears. And every time you do so, you leave behind the potential of a great things. Like there's a book my wife read it. I've not read it. Full disclosure, it's called Three Feet from Gold, and it's mm-hmm. quite literally like that. Like if that person just stayed in there instead of selling shovels or, or pickaxes, uh, they would have been very, very wealthy. And it's a famous story. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Nitty, your thoughts on any of this? Well, yeah, I wanted to ask Mayur if you, because um, kind of, what well, kind of what I was hearing is that there was like a bit of a FOMO, right? Like that fear yeah. of missing out. And so I wonder if the initial experience where you saw the, you know, the, the skyrocket of web one after you had left, I wonder if that experience is part of why you might switch because it's like that fear of, could that happen again? Right? Like, I don't know. I just, uh, um, I wonder. Well, I'm, I'm a, I'm a super positive person. I've, I've been through some pretty difficult struggles personally and family stuff and was nearly homeless at one point, but I've always remained positive. So, um, I'm not really driven so much by fear. I think, I think why I didn't stick to things, um, to niches or to, to work that I was doing. Um, I think there's an element of self-confidence and self-worth. It's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, I could double down on one of the, one of these projects that I'd done and stuff that I tried, I could have easily doubled down and just made it work. But the confidence, the personal confidence wasn't there. I think that, uh, you know, I've spent lots of time with guys like Jim Rohn and Brian Tracy and Dennis Waitley and all these great personal development people listen to thousands of hours of stuff. Um, and I've come to the conclusion that I think self-confidence is really the root of most, uh, most people's problems. Um, at least that's been my, my understanding. That makes sense. I mean, it totally makes sense because I think, you know, if, if you have a belief that I am capable of that, you know, that transformative success, then you do stay the course because it's something that has been uh, thought of as feasible. But if you if you view that as something that's out of your realm of possibility, then then, of course, that that's understandable that you're not going to try to go for that thing because you just don't maybe buy into the idea that you could achieve it. Right. And so yeah. I, I feel you on that um you know I, I i definitely understand where you're coming from there Mayuri. yeah i think there's that that one moment of decision where okay i'm working on something i've got a client and I'm, you know things are going great and then there's that one moment that the creative says uh, maybe this isn't going to work out maybe this maybe i'll go try something else oh look at this other new shiny thing okay i'm going to quit what i'm doing now that, that's actually working for me um and i'm going to go try something else because i'm impatient or i don't believe that no, I don't believe in myself. I don't believe I can make this thing go from 10000 a year to a million dollars a year. Definitely. Definitely. Well, you know, and I think that that's the mindset piece, right? And so, you know, being able to to really recognize that when you put in the time and when you really uh, have the focus, you've had past experiences that have shown you that you can make it through, right? I'm sure there have been some instances in your life where, you know, embracing the grit has allowed for you to, to experience that success. So I think any opportunity to strengthen that and remember that and bring that to your awareness, um, knowing that we have that negativity bias, right? I think that that's such a, an important piece. So really appreciate you, Meyer. Thank you so much for sharing. Sure. Thank you. All right. I'm going to move the mic over to Evie. Evie, how do you want to contribute today? Well, I've been struggling on how to uh, keep it concise 
Nita, you were kind enough to be in the room that I held about um, uh, anger that people who are late diagnosed ADHD feel because of what, well, we feel like we could have achieved had we known that we had it before. So I, I was a programmer for 18 years and I was good at what I did. And the company that I worked for out there in entire North American IT department overseas, this, this was hundreds of people. And I didn't see it coming. I thought I was going to be working for this company for a while. I was uh, about to transition another uh, career uh, to, to a business to be a business analyst. And uh, for various reasons, I hadn't kept my programming toolbox updated. So when I lost my job, I was unable to get another job in my field, not even at an entry level. So for a while, I just, I, I kind of imploded and didn't even get my toolbox up. And I found myself in a, a position where I, I'm good at a lot of things, but I can't prove it. You know, um, it's just stuff I've done for volunteers or just for people on the side or whatever. And now I'm in a position to where I can do maybe four or five different career choices and uh, I'm suffering analysis paralysis or whatever. It's like, what if I choose this path and it ends up being the wrong one? And it, it seems like every I I keep bouncing around, you know, chipping at a bunch of little stones a little bit here and there and not never anything done. You had asked, you know, why why do people stop right before you know, get things going? And I had tweeted out, and there's a book called The Big Leap by uh, Gay Hendricks. And he talks about upper limit problems. And that's when you start moving into your zone of genius, your ego consciously makes things happen in your life to sabotage you doing that. And you have to recognize it. It could be something with your health, finances, relationships, whatever. You think it's just a coincidence when it's actually something to keep you from moving into your zone of genius. And uh, another thing that I find, because I... I didn't realize so many people suffer from this, but it's a fear of success. And if I get successful, you know, there's an imposter syndrome in there too. Uh, they'll, they'll, they'll realize that I really don't know what the heck I'm doing, or uh, they realize all the responsibilities that they have that, you know, they'll have to hire employees and the, the imposter syndrome dips in again. And they're afraid that they're going to ruin other people's lives or, or they feel like, they won't be able to handle the success and turn into uh, a bad person. You know, so I'm, you know, I struggle with that fear of success as well, because I know that uh, whatever I decide to do, I'm going to be good at it. Just figuring out what to do and getting the support that I need to uh, get over those uh, upper limit problems, so to speak. Totally, Evie. And well, and I love what you said about, you know, the the protective element that we have, right? So when it comes down to um, that moment where we might be able to, to catapult to success, I think often if we've had past experiences, we, we get fearful and that protective part of us kind of kicks in and is like, oh no, like, wait a second, are you sure about that? Like, I don't know, you're going to be capable of it. And all of that negative self-talk comes right back in. And I, I think instead of chastising, 
exercising that part of us, I, I instead lean into it and recognize the fact that it's just, it's serving a purpose of trying to protect me. And I don't have to buy into it and I don't have to believe it. Um, I can stay the course, even despite the fact that this, you know, the script is running in my head and instead just realize that, you know, it, it's, it's an opportunity to be able to push past you know, some of the protections with the opportunity also to see success in a different way when you do push past that. So it's like building an alliance in a lot of ways with the parts of us that want to sabotage and want to hold us back out of fear and a, and a spirit of protection. And instead challenging that and not necessarily accepting that as what the reality is, right? Like, hey, I feel yeah, I know it feels really scary right now. We acknowledge it, right? But I have all of this evidence to show me that I can do this and I've proven to myself that I can focus when I need to. So that's going to be my decision right now. I hope that that, that makes sense. Edie, was that helpful? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I appreciate it that like maybe give that um, piece of me like a name or something like that and uh, treat it as a whole different entity. Perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, well, Chris, you know, I know that we were kind of, we were chatting a little bit and I hadn't asked you a couple of questions that I had wanted to ask. And, um, if it's okay with you, I think it would, it would kind of help people to better understand your pivot, um, and how you got out of that feeling of being stuck. Because I know that there was a period in your own business where you felt stuck and, uh, had to make some really hard decisions there to basically build the future. And so would you be willing to share a little bit more about that with the audience? Yeah, I'm happy to share that and go any which way you think would be beneficial to people listening. Uh, I have said this before. I try my best to be as transparent about all things of my life. So I know one of the the elements, Chris, you, you talked about how you know, the, the data wasn't adding up, right, with blind and that you were clearly seeing that there was this train wreck happening. But I think something that we didn't really touch on that a lot of business owners experience is that there was um, a bit of a contentiousness, like a, an air of contention in, in the venture and that there was a little bit of a butting heads and a little bit of like a culture that didn't feel as though it was sustainable. And so I think that this is important for people in the audience to hear to really help them to tease out how you made the decision to move forward outside of the data, because we made it seem like it was just data driving that decision. And while that was perhaps, I don't know, maybe 70% of your, your choice, I think there was a piece of that pie that related back to the relationship with people in the business and some of the toll that, that was taking on you. So um, we would love to hear. Time for a quick break, but we'll be right back. Welcome back to our conversation. Okay, so there's a couple of different pivots here that uh, I want to be sure I'm talking about the one that you're referencing. So when I noticed that there was a decline in commercial work, I was looking for another way to apply what it is that we're already doing to something else, to a market that was either growing or expanding or about to break open. And, and of course, there's pushback because every time you go into the unknown, uh, there's too many things at risk. And one of the things that I think you have to do as an entrepreneur is to become uh, comfortable with risk and not to be risk averse, but to be risk tolerant. And this is the thing that I find that separates entrepreneurs from managers or faux entrepreneurs, you know, wannapreneurs. And it's your appetite for risk. 
And I often talk to my wife about these kinds of things because she'll say to me like at dinner, she's like, honey, how come you're so like ready to just drop it and go for it? Uh, aren't you scared? Uh, and she had a very different uh, upbringing than I did. Grew up in mostly an upper class family, whereas I, for for most of my life, felt that we're, we're a poor middle class, something like that. And the, the thing that I would say to her, it's like, from your lens, it looks really risky. From my lens, it just looks like the, the decision you have to make. And I've, I've said to her, like, I've sustained myself on very little. Uh, you know, that uh, the story all college students tell you that eating top ramen and whatever else you can scrap up, that was actually my reality. And what I said to her was, you know, I feel like I've come from nothing and I'm comfortable returning back to nothing with the full confidence that I can rebuild this again. Uh, whether this was true or not, in my mind, I always believe this, and I still continue to believe this today, that the hardest thing that I'm going to do is to try and run a business. And the backup plan is just to go and work for someone. I've had many job offers while running my company from our clients and from our competitors who have dangled a lot of money in front of me and guarantees and promises of not too much work and ultimate freedom. And I've turned every single one of those down. So when you have that in your back pocket, I think it gives you the kind of confidence to go ahead and make these bold decisions and quote unquote risk it all. And to tie it back to the beginning of our conversation tonight about the, the Elon Musk, uh, the Tony Shays, or even the Jeff Bezos of the world, they're probably having that same level of confidence. Like if this venture fails, it will not be my final failure. It will just be a failure. And so I'm looking at other opportunities. I'm that canary in the coal mine of our business to say something smells off. My spider sense is tingling and we need to start pivoting. And you get that resistance. And there's a couple of resistance that you're going to get. Your management team is going to be confused by these decisions and they're going to push back. Mostly because they don't know of any other way for themselves to be of value to someone. And they can see quite clearly uh, that the ship that got us here uh, the boss, me, the captain, is building another ship and they don't know how to sail that ship. And they start to do everything they can to slow that process down. And, and it sounds like I'm being hyperbolic, but literally this is what they were doing. They were diverting resources and attention and creating more drama where it was not necessary to slow down this thing because they feel like they're being abandoned. From my point of view, I was inviting them in, like, please come with me, make this jump. But as we know, not everyone can make the jump. Not everyone wants to make the jump. And so there's going to be turnover or churn on this. And it happens. And it happens more often than I'd like. But for the people who are willing to go along with me on this journey and, and to say, you know what? If you're comfortable with the risk, we're comfortable supporting you. We believe in the dream. And I think at some point we, we wash through almost every single person going through multiple iterations of the company, but the ones who are risk tolerant, who believe in the promise of a better tomorrow, uh, they have stayed with me and they're still with me to this day. So that's how I know I have the right crew. They've gone through multiple iterations of this pivot and they're pretty hard pivots and they're still there. They're still smiling and they, they have adapted. And I'm super proud of the people who are able to, to do that. And I just feel like with this crew, with this team, Anything is possible that we, we are ready to take on any and all challenges. And, and so that's some of the resistance. If you're talking about the pivot from blind to the future, that's yet a whole nother struggle. But I wanted to pause there. 
Yeah, well, yes, and we will get to that too, because I think that that was also a really important shift for you um, and a lot of reasons that went into making that move. But I appreciated what you said about how, you know, the change can feel really scary, not only for yourself, right? Like, you know, you had to really make sure all the ducks were in a row, but also to make sure that your team that you've built with is willing to withstand that and that there will be some fallout as a result. And I think that a lot of times, you know, we're afraid to be to break the news to the people that we work with because we know that some of them are going to be, you know, they're, they're a little bit rigid when it comes to um, what they expect and how they expect work to go. Um, but there was another piece of the story too, Chris, that I, I really wanted to zoom in on a little bit. And that's, you know, the fact that the, the pushback I think came from every direction, especially as we shift into the story from blind to the future, right? Like there was a lot of, um, a lot of doubt being cast on, you know, your ideas and and what you've built now with the future. And it would have been really easy to go down this pathway of, you know, feeling uh, self-doubt and imposter syndrome. And, and I just, I wanted to kind of glean for the audience um, how you were able to navigate that because it's painful when people around you are saying that you're not capable or you're not, you're not going to be successful in something. And it can really uh, deeply impact not only the way that you view your success externally, but also who you view yourself as going forward. So if you're willing to share, I think that that'll also add um, a richness to this conversation. Sure. When it comes to, to blind and seeing the data, it is very clear to me and I, I do want to mention a few things. I think I, I, I'm not totally sure the thing that you're referencing. So I'm not trying to be evasive here. So Nitty, you may have to just frame it a little bit better for me. But I do want to yep. say something, okay? Like leadership is supposed to lead. You're supposed to make the hard decisions. I, I did not decide to go to work for myself to work 80 hours to make 40 hours uh, worth of money because I wanted to follow someone else's direction. That is pretty clear, Right. It's not about necessarily when you have to make these big, bold decisions. It's not about consensus building. And maybe I'm going to alienate a couple of people when I say this, but it's not making decision or design by committee. That sounds like government to me. It sounds bureaucratic. And so when the data says this, and I'm not asking anyone to put at risk their financial future and all their savings, it's my money, right? And, and this is a lesson I learned from my business coach at that time, Kira. And he would say to me, Chris, um, you don't have to be right, but you've earned the right to be wrong. I'm the guy who stays up at night thinking about, are we going to make payroll? I'm the guy who feels this thing the most when we lose a prospect that we should have landed. Yes, the team is bummed out, but they still collect their paycheck. So, what he gave me was something beautiful and wonderful that he gave me permission to be a leader. You don't have to be right, but you have the right to be wrong. And so I don't now have to say, well, team, what do we want to do? Are we all in agreement? Because everybody just chooses the path of least resistance. No one wants to be wrong. So if you stay with what you're doing, no one gets blamed. But if you stick your neck out and say, boss, we want to do something bold and crazy and different, you're liable to get your head chopped off. And I'm not that kind of leader, right? So this is where everybody's like, oh, I don't know. Let's go along or not go along. 
And and so this is the the what what is required of lead, leadership is that you have to make those hard hard decisions. And I I love to make submarine comparisons, right? Like almost always in submarine movies, there's always a section of the crew that gets trapped and the captain of the boat has to make a decision, seal off the chamber and few of your precious people die or leave it open, try and save everyone and everyone perishes. That's the role of leadership. We don't have a committee meeting about it while the boat is sinking. I have to make a decision. And to me, Nitty, it, it, there wasn't a lot of self-doubt when it says we have to pivot. I can see the future. It's very clear. And so here's the crazy thing. Um, as I'm making moves to change industries, I can feel that other people are scratching their head. I can feel our sales reps saying, Chris, what are you doing? Why would you walk away from this? This doesn't make sense to us. There's still a lot more money here to get. So I think they're making that argument and I can seem like uh, maybe I'm contradicting myself right now that they're saying you're three feet from gold. Stay here. Keep pulling out the diamonds or the gold from the mine. And I'm like, you know, it's a short term play. I have to think about the next five to 10 year arc and I'm not seeing it here. I would love nothing more than to stay here. And I got into some pretty heated disagreements with, with my staff. I've had to close an office uh, because they weren't going along with the program. And that hurt. It hurt the people there. And it hurt me emotionally and professionally. Like, man, what kind of entrepreneur am I? I'm starting a, a, another office and I have to close that thing down. That's a blemish on my record. So you feel all of that and that weighs on you. But I let something else weigh on me heavier, which is the future of the people who have entrusted me to protect their jobs. And that's how I'm able to overcome that. I'm not sure that's what you were getting at, Nidhi, but I'm going to turn it back over to you. Yeah, I mean, so that that share absolutely resonates and, you know, that you have a greater responsibility, especially when you're running, um, you know, like an agency like you are, where you employ multiple people that the decisions aren't about just yourself any longer, right? If you're a solopreneur, you're making decisions on behalf of yourself and your family. But when you're running a business that has other people whose lives depend on, you know, your business and the services you provide, then it becomes, you know, somebody has to be at the helm and it's just kind of like when you're a, you're a kid and you're looking to your parents for guidance somebody's got to take control like somebody's got to be um at the stern of the ship and so i think that that makes a whole lot of sense i think what i was kind of getting at was that you know there were some uh moments where emotionally on top of the fact that yes you saw you saw the writing on the wall but that there were also some dynamics at play does that make sense that like the dynamics also played into this decision mm -hmm. because i really i'm trying to drive home the fact that there were more factors beyond just the data and i think that that supports some of what we had talked about earlier in this conversation around being able to get out of situations that uh, are emotionally taxing and it's beyond just a, a, a point of grit and pushing through it's now starting to take a toll in terms of friendships and relationships and your health and well-being um does that make sense are you am i do i need to be much more do i need to be more direct than that or i, I think it's like my back channel well. yeah yeah I'm, I'm following the back channel here and i think um perhaps because we talked last night the, the conversations are blurring together i i know exactly what you're talking about but it's a different part of the story here so i'm gonna have to open that part up and and jump through that hole so that that you can hear what, what Nidhi is referencing, I think. 
so there there is this moment in my career and my and running the company that we pivot it doesn't work we pivot again it starts to work and then we do one really hard pivot and that now we're designing ourselves out of the service industry so in in and you know this in 2014 uh, Jose and I decide to start making YouTube videos and from the outside it looks like the dumbest thing ever because this thing isn't making us any money at all like nothing no real amount of money and Jose's this wild personality he's charismatic but he's also reckless and a little sloppy and he brings a whole reputation with him that isn't in alignment with who I am I often describe our relationship like that old TV show, The Odd Couple, where Felix and Oscar could not be more different. One is really buttoned up and neat and fastidious, and the other one's sloppy, carefree, uh, but is emotional and, and has heart. And so those two get together and they have to live together. And uh, they're, they're, you know, th- that's the chemistry between the two of them. And that really is the chemistry between Jose and I, two very different people, different backgrounds, but wanting to build something. And in the beginning, it looks like everybody's going to humor me and tolerate like me distracting or getting distracted by this second venture. Back then in 2014, for all you OGs out there, it was called The School. And the name was uh, the company that Jose already had. But we had a common purpose and mission, which is to create an education company. Two very different approaches. And I can start to feel like there's something here we don't have the proof that it's working because we've got a product. And for the first year of business, I think we do something like $14,000 of revenue. I'm going to pull up the revenue sheet here in a second so that I, I have the real data to talk to you about this. And I'm starting to get lots of questions from people uh, because people feel the absence of my leadership and being involved in new business pitches and they're trying to pull me back in. And my directive to the team was, please, I'm trying to build another company so that all of us have a good life raft or a safety uh, net here so that we can escape this one. I need you all to run the company as best as you can for as long as you can. Keep the runway nice and long. Uh, you are all qualified. You're all good enough. You can do this without me, right? And of course, when... Your boss is no longer focusing on the company in which you're employed by. It probably sends like shockwaves throughout everybody and people get a little nervous and scared. And a couple of things did happen to me during this period in time that there was a lot of resistance from, again, management team. Like, Chris, we, we love the idea of what you're doing. We don't know how to participate. Really concerned about our futures. And so new executive executive producer at this time is already looking to another job, kind of sending out his resume. And my senior producer was doing the same thing. So they could see the writing on the wall. And instead of choosing to uh, join me in this venture, uh, they decided it's best for them to apply their skills and talents and what they know to something else. So there's resistance there. Um, There's a lot of confusion within the creative teams. Like, well, if we don't have clients, what are we going to do? Like our whole mindset what we train to do is to serve a client and now we don't have a boss. How does this even work? And I, I have to say that to even my own coach at that time was questioning like, Chris, this is still a legitimate business that you can run for quite some time. Why abandon this? And I'm getting pushback from all corners. Like uh, I, I go to, um, to uh, industry functions 
And I, I, I didn't know it at this time, but I did get some strange looks. And later on, people told me that people were throwing uh, daggers with their eyes at me because I was talking about the industry in ways that people weren't at that time. I was teaching creatives, freelancers, how to charge their worth, how to negotiate, how to walk out of toxic work relationships. And I think some of these business owners, my, my colleagues and some competitors were feeling it. And some of their criticism was, you're making it very difficult for us to run our companies with the kind of information that you're putting out there. And I was like, well, that's your problem. How's that my problem? If you pay your people well and you treat them fairly, we have no issue. Like my team works for me and they know I make these videos. We don't have the same problem for some reason. I wonder why. And so, yeah, I was getting a lot of heat. And I remember in this pivotal moment, pre us actually having real breakthroughs and numbers to back up what I believe to be uh, on the horizon for us. I remember going to, to Art Center and talking to them about transitioning from a traditional school to doing online or hybrid-based learning. That this whole remote learning, making education equitable for everyone, this is an idea that, isn't, that it doesn't need to be proved. It's already been proven. And I wanted to help them. And I took several meetings with very important people within the administration. And they even trekked on over to the west side from Pasadena. We sat in my conference room. I laid out the roadmap for them. I shared what it is that we're learning, how we can help. And quite literally, one of the people who attended that meeting uh, laughed, laughed out loud and said, Chris, you're an alarmist. I've heard all these uh uh, predictions of doom and gloom that the industry is upside down you're just an alarmist and he kind of brushed me off like I'm some kid out of school I'm like alright we will see thanks for joining us this time if you haven't already, subscribe to our show on your favorite podcasting app and get a new insightful episode from us every week. The Future Podcast is hosted by Chris Doe and produced by me, Greg Gunn. Thank you to Anthony Barrow for editing and mixing this episode. And thank you to Adam Sanborn for our intro music. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor by rating and reviewing our show on Apple Podcasts. It'll help us grow the show and make future episodes that much better. Have a question for Chris or me? head over to thefuture.com slash heychris and ask away. We read every submission and we just might answer yours in a later episode. If you'd like to support the show and invest in yourself while you're at it, visit thefuture.com. You'll find video courses, digital products, and a bunch of helpful resources about design and creative business. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time.